Hinduism has marketed itself very well as peace-loving yoga meditation. But there is a very violent side of Hinduism. Militant Hinduism as militant Islam is not a new concept. And we would think that this is only fringe element. But unfortunately, they are no more fringe because the politicians have learned how to use them for gaining political power. Did you know that you can help support the work of the White Horse Inn every time you purchase something at Amazon.com by using Amazon Smile? At no additional charge to you, Amazon will donate a small percentage of every transaction to the White Horse Inn when you link your account to Amazon Smile. Simply visit smile.amazon.com and enter White Horse Inc., our official nonprofit name. That's White Horse I-N-C, and select White Horse Inc. Escondido. Then the next time you shop at smile.amazon.com, you'll be helping to support our work here at the White Horse Inn. Again, simply head to smile.amazon.com and enter White Horse Inc. Thanks for your support. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Hey there, and welcome to another edition of the White Horse Inn. I'm Shane Rosenthal, and on this program, we'll be exploring many of the beliefs, practices, and assumptions of Hinduism. As many of you may be aware, this isn't merely an abstract concern, since according to a 2018 Pew Research study, as many as 33% of U.S. adults say they now believe in the doctrine of reincarnation. This figure is actually up 9% from polls taken in the last decade. Also, according to other studies, as many as 34% of Americans say they're likely to practice yoga and meditation sometime in the next 12 months. So what accounts for the increasing popularity of traditional Hindu beliefs and practices, both here in the U.S. and around the world? And what is it like to live in a culture that has been shaped by Hindu assumptions? Our guest for this program has been on the White Horse Inn before, but due to the increasing level of persecution that he is currently witnessing among Christians in his home country of India, he is requested to remain anonymous. But throughout this exchange, he'll talk about what he describes as the dark side of Hinduism. The first question I asked our guest is what it was like to grow up as a Christian in a predominantly Hindu culture. Yes, that was very interesting because uh, 98% of our family was Muslim and 98% of the neighborhood where I was brought up in the schools and the play field uh, was Hindu. And right in the midst of it, you were a professing Christian. So very early, we were asking questions. Very early means even before I turned 10. We were asking questions about who is God? Which book is the true book? <laughs> who is God? And is Allah God? Is Jesus God? Or are these millions of gods that Hinduism professes to follow. Who is God after that? So what's the percentage of Christians in India? The overall percentage of Christians, according to the census, is 2.3% currently. And that totals how many people approximately? 2.3% of 1.3 billion is about 29 point some million Christians. So let's say 30 million Christians 
But let me clarify this figure about uh, the percentage of Christians. So when the census takes place, a lot of people are there who are Christians, but they are afraid to tell that they are Christians. So they don't mention that they are Christians. So they keep the historical religion as is in the family, as Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Buddhist, Jain. Even the Hindu organizations, when you press them on this point, what is the percentage of Christians? Even they would say it's close to 5%. But officially, we are only 2.3%. So let me ask you this question. How would you define what Hinduism is? How would you define that belief system? So Hinduism is a very, although simplistic on the outside, is a very complex system of their worldview and religion. Whenever we talk about a religion, we have to go to the non-negotiables, you know, to identify what this religion is all about. So reincarnation is non-negotiable in Hinduism, that every birth is a rebirth. And there are cycles of rebirth that take place, and the cycle is dependent on the kind of life that you have lived. If you have been a good dog or a bad dog, uh, you have been a good uh, man or a bad man, it will affect your uh, rebirth. So reincarnation is one of the non-negotiable of Hinduism. Also, monism, everything is one. Okay. Also, polytheism. These are the non-negotiables of Hinduism. So how can you have a belief that everything is one while at the same time having polytheism? Help explain that for our listeners. So uh, when I say everything is one, monism is that all religions are the same. God is part of everything. So there is no distinction between the creator and the creation. So is that basically pantheism? Yes, it is also pantheism, but uh, it is that everything is leading to the same destination. So, yes, Jesus is God, Muhammad is God, Buddha is God, uh, Krishna is God, everything is God, you are God, I am God, uh, you know, cow is God, mountains are God, rivers is God, everything is God. In the practice of these non-negotiables, another thing which is not such a non-negotiable, but in his practice is found non-negotiable is the caste system. So although it is illegal, the caste system is illegal according to the constitution and laws have been passed against it, but it is practiced in every sphere of society. The stratification of the society in terms of your caste, and mind you, Caste system and class system is totally different. You have class system in the West. But in a class system, the son of a janitor could be an astronaut. Okay. In the caste system, your parents could be janitors. And you might, through the positive discrimination, that means the reservations that are there for the lower caste, become a doctor. But you would be a useless surgeon because uh, the high caste will not allow you to operate on them. So caste system, you cannot come out of the caste, even if you become a doctor, even if you become a flying pilot. You can never skip the caste system. And it is very, very discriminatory 
system. The other day when we were talking, you actually compared the caste system to uh, apartheid. Can you go into that a little bit? Yes. I think the caste system is the last bastion of apartheid in the world. And in fact, at the United Nations, this question has been raised to compare and consider caste system as apartheid. Because you discriminate against people on the basis of their birth. And this is apartheid. Although we are all Indians, but there are still temples in India where the Dalits and the low caste cannot go and worship. They are only for high caste. Then, almost every week somewhere in India, there is a honor killing because a high caste fell in love with the low caste. And not just fell in love. Even if they got married, newspapers are full of it when the girl was killed or the boy was killed by assassins hired by the families because it was an honor-shame issue because they being high caste, their son or their daughter married in the low caste. And if you are of a lower caste, you can never break through it. Okay, so though idolatry is rampant here in the U.S. and around the world, really, in India, you say that it's actually common to see people bowing down to actual idols, right? Yeah, I think idolatry in the West is philosophical idolatry. But idolatry in India is the literal idolatry. Every street corner has a temple. Every street has a temple. Every village has his own god. Every mega city is known by a goddess. And these are literal idols. And in some places, there are 30 feet high, 100 feet high idols. And people literally fall before them. It is very, very difficult to see a flying pilot or a professor of physics falling down in front of an idol. So I had a conversation with one of them and I said, you know, you are a scientist. How can you fall down in front of an idol? And the person said, because God is indescribable and I cannot describe God. But I said, but God has given you a mind. Do you not use your mind when you are standing in front of a stone idol? And the person baffled me by their answer. And they said, we switch our brains when we come before God. Because if I start arguing and fighting with God with my mind, then I will go crazy. If I was created by an intelligent God who gave me my mind, then I can engage with God with my mind. And there is no fear of arguing with God or asking questions about God or his deity or his existence or his very being. We can ask that question and should be unafraid what the answer would be because God has given us a mind and we find that even in the end when we use our mind, we find God. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but my perception is that the goal of traditional idol worship isn't the way we Christians think of worship. It's not to glorify the deity as much as it is. It's much more pragmatic in Hinduism. So a person might be there to honor the God of wealth primarily in order to get wealthy himself, right? So in other words, it's not so much about glorifying the deity as much as it is about having your best life now. That's absolutely right. Hinduism 
says not God for the sake of God, but what God can do for us. So God is the big guy you need on your side. But then there is another complication because there is no single deity. So there is a goddess of wealth. There is a goddess of education. There is a god of protection. There is a god for the journey. There are all these different gods. So it is not that man is in urgent need of God because I was made by God and I have violated his holy order on this earth. It is what God can give me. The reason the health, wealth, prosperity gospel thrived in India, and it is the harvest ground for that kind of theology, is again for the very reason, not God for the sake of God, but what we can get out of him. So Hinduism is very, very attractive because in Hinduism, you can have your religious cake but you can have all your physical fulfillment as well. There is a God of sex. Okay, There is a God of drugs. Okay, <laughs> There is a God who had so many uh, girlfriends uh, and he used to watch them taking bath, uh, sitting on top of a tree and used to hide their undergarments. You know, so, uh, well, you know, if you have a God like that, you know, what kind of license are you giving people who follow gods like that? Gods that take drugs. So, uh, you know, well, we can take drugs too, you know, if God can take drugs. So it is a, Hinduism is still a re evolving religion. Like in Islam, Judaism and Christianity, there is uh, a set doctrine. In Hinduism, because it's an evolving religion, there is no set of doctrine. So we have got issues as far as the Bible is concerned and the clear teaching of Bible on human sexuality. So it's very, very clear. God created man and woman at the beginning of creation. In Hinduism, the whole issue of LGBTQ and those 112 genders that are being pronounced now is not an issue at all, is not an issue at all. So when a Westerner comes to Hinduism, uh, he finds it very liberating. Because there is no issue about the holiness of God. There is no issue about the standards of God. God is at your terms, not God as revealed in the scripture. So idolatry and paganism basically brings itself with it all these issues, which a Western mind thinks is a liberation. But if you really look at it from the vantage point of Christian faith and belief, is the freedom that we find in finding God rather than the confusion of the millions of gods that are there. Why is it that you think we have such a positive view of various Hindu concepts here in the United States today? In the West, there is a mindset where we want to say that we will accept everything but Christianity. And I know there are reasons for the disappointments at mass which people have had with Christianity, but they are willing to accept anything as long as it's not Christianity. Godless secularism in the West has left a vacuum in the heart of men. And every time you leave a vacuum, religion moves in. 
godless secularism and the everyday competition in the world has left him wanting some transcendence and hinduism repackaged hinduism new age comes along and gives him that and says that yes all is god you are god and that is where yoga comes in that is where transcendental meditation comes in that is where the new age comes in in that vacuum now though many in the united states today are attracted to a variety of hindu ideas such as karma or reincarnation you say there's a dark side to some of those doctrines so yes we say that our karma follows us into the next life but what happens in this life i think the whole philosophy of karma gives you you bail yourself out of taking responsibility for the poor the poor has to take the full brunt of his poverty now because in the last life he did something bad if i do bail him out of that that means he has not taken the full brunt of his bad works and that is going to affect his next life and correct me if i'm wrong the goal in that birth and rebirth cycle is to escape existence to stop that cycle and to arrive at a place where you cease to exist right the whole thing of birth and rebirth is finally to be born as a brahmin or to be born as a cow and then when you die you immerse in the brahman that's why a brahmin would say to you is that he is god because that is the highest birth and therefore for a brahmin to believe in a personal god like jesus is an inferior idea it's not a superior idea and because he thinks that he is god once he is born as a brahmin and once he dies as a brahmin then he immerses into the universal god he's one with the universe he's one with the universe basically the impersonal divine he he becomes part of the impersonal divine Folks, if you enjoy this broadcast, consider diving in a little deeper with our White Horse Sin study kits. These kits are perfect for small to medium-sized groups from 5 to 15 people, and they can also be used for family devotions or individual study. Choose from several subjects like how to read your Bible, do we all worship the same God, and the parables of Jesus. For a donation of $15, you'll receive download links to leaders guides, student guides, full-length audio and short audio clips pertaining to each lesson. Just head to whitehorseinn.org/studykits. That's whitehorseinn.org/studykits. Your $15 donation will help us to continue to make resources like this to help Christians know what they believe and why they believe it. Thanks for your support. Welcome back to the White Horse Inn. I'm Shane Rosenthal, and on this program I'm talking with a guest who wishes to remain anonymous due to the increasing threat of persecution from what he refers to as militant Hinduism. Now, many of us in the West, we have this concept of militant Islam, but not a lot of us are aware of militant Hinduism. Can you speak about that a little? Yes, so militant Hinduism is not a new concept. Militant Hinduism as militant Islam is inherent in the Islamic culture and scriptures so is militant Hinduism inherent in its culture 
Islam has marketed itself badly and Hinduism has marketed itself very well as peace-loving yoga meditation. But in the Hindu tradition, during the time of the Mughal emperor Aurangzeb, when he started persecuting the Hindus, at that time we find the inception of Sikhism. Sikhism was born for the very purpose of defending Hinduism against the violence of Islam. So a Sikh always carried a weapon for the defense, personal defense and the defense of faith. It is only in the past few decades that Sikhism is now recognized as a separate religion from Hinduism. Otherwise, Sikhism was militant Hinduism. Also, there is at one point in the history of India when Buddhism became the predominant religion. And at that time, the Naga Sadhus got up. These are the guys that carry weapons and got rid of Buddhist shrines and Buddhism as a major religion in India. So, in the West, you have seen violent Islam. But in India, the largest paramilitary organization is the RSS. It is recognized as the major army of people. Then there is Shiv Sena, Bajrang Dal. They are very violent in the way that they operate. These are all religious armies running a riot at the edicts of their religious leaders. So there is a very violent side of Hinduism. And we would at one point think that this is only fringe element and these are only fringe groups. But unfortunately, they are no more fringe because the politicians have learned how to use them cleverly and carefully for gaining political power. And once religion and politics they mix, they become a very vicious mixture of which we see now in India the increasing level of religious intolerance that is there is because of these political parties who have deliberately organized and used these religious armies of volunteers that are there. Let me follow up on that because you've argued in various settings that the current leadership in India is committed to making that country much more radically Hindu, regardless of the implications it might have on the country's economic well-being. And so what do you think are the implications of that move? I think the implications of those moves are very, very clear. Yes, the predominant faith in India is Hinduism with 80% people following it. So now this is the opportunity to make India into a Hindu nation. And definitely they are moving in that direction of declaring India a Hindu Rashtra. Pakistan was an Islamic democracy. Bangladesh is an Islamic democracy. They want to make India not a secular democracy, but a Hindu democracy. Where obviously when you say it is a Hindu democracy, then Christians and Muslims 
and other religious group which are non-indigenous faiths as they are called there will be more restrictions against them so what do you think that hindus in positions of authority find so threatening about those in their country who convert to christianity i think uh, the issue over here is what does faith in christ result in so we believe that since we are created in the image of god we are all equal i think that equality that we are talking about in christ jesus the fracture that the caste system has created in the society there is one shining place where you see that stratification is not practice is the church and in the church there is absolute equality between the high and the low the rich and the poor we do not identify a christian on the basis of his social standard but on the basis of his faith in christ christianity is been accused that when we come in and because of this whole business of conversion that we have really damaged the social stratification that was working well over millenniums and now by coming and telling a dalit or telling a low caste that no he should not be subservient to the high caste we have created a fracture in the society and therefore even through our social works even through places where we are working on the ground uh, with the poor all that is being misrepresented and misinterpreted as a deliberate attempt to destabilize a social structure that has delivered the goods for the rich and the high caste and that is where they turn violent against christians because when we say everybody is made equal in the sight of god do you know the consequence of that is it hits the pocketbook of people it hits the money that is coming in and the misuse of people that cannot happen anymore because the christians say we are all made equal in the sight of god the issue is also as i said the pride issue the exclusivity of christ as the only way to god is something that sticks and rankles that is something that they cannot accept because that means a rejection of everything they believed if jesus is dawe they say he's the son of god fine but you say he is the only way back to god he is the god that is why they say hey what's the problem i have accepted your gods why don't you accept mine you are so narrow minded the issue with christ is either he is god or he is not god and the problem with hindus is they are willing to accept him as one of the gods but they are not willing to accept him as exclusively god because that means you know 
they have to give up all what they believe in. So the exclusivity of Christ is also a very big issue why the church is being persecuted. And and do you know, they don't, I, I really think that the issue is not with Christians. The issue is with Christ. I am absolutely convinced and my eyes have been, my blind eyes have been opened to recognize that Jesus is God's son, Savior. And when I look in the scriptures, the Holy Bible, I find that the evidence, the overwhelming evidence of Jesus being God's son, Savior, only God, are so overwhelming that I cannot just but believe and trust him and be ready for the consequences. So can you give us some examples of what kinds of persecution happens when people do identify as Christian? I think the first level of persecution that begins is it begins at home. It's the family. See, the kind of individual Christianity, which unfortunately has been promoted from the West, did not work in the East because in the Indian culture, you take family decisions. You don't take individual decisions. And uh, when an individual becomes a Christian, he basically is rebelling against the family. Because till now, the family has taken all good decisions for him. But now, he is taking an individual decision. So Christianity is creating a fracture in the community because of which there is such a social upheaval that the family is the first line of attack. Today, a lot of new believers are in house arrest by their families. They cannot leave their homes because they have trusted in Christ. And if neighbors come to know that the son has become a Christian or the relatives come to know that the son has become a Christian, it would be a lot of shame. So the first line of persecution is family. Then if the person changes his mind or is able to return from that situation, then it's fine. But if the person does not, then they will involve the religious leaders or the society leaders. Once the religious leader steps in, that is where violence begins, violence towards the person and violence towards those who were involved in sharing the good news with the person. That is where they come to know, oh, this pastor led our child to the Lord. Then the church is attacked, then the church is burnt. That is where the persecution begins. Then when this stage comes, it leads into the third stage where then the state gets involved, where the police gets involved. There is a cases launched against the church and against the Christian leaders. And then now if the places where the religious anti-conversion legislations are in place, then the anti-conversion legislations are invoked. But the interesting thing is there are eight states in India who have passed an anti-conversion legislation out of the 29 states. Interestingly, they have not been able to bring conviction against one Christian under the anti-conversion legislations. Yes, many pastors are in prison. Yes, many Christian workers are in prison. But they have not been able to bring conviction against any of them that they were involved in false conversions. Now, you, you've talked about that there is a kind of propaganda 
to make Hinduism seem more palatable, more interesting. So talk about that a little bit. I think in the way New Age has been introduced to the West, New Age has repackaged Hinduism for the Western palate. And in the way that it has been presented in the West is, of course, as it is all for peace, it is all for uh, your good, it is all for yoga. But even if you scratch the surface a little bit, and let's go and see the yoga schools. There are over 5,000 yoga schools at the moment in USA. And each one of them is being run by a very committed Hindu evangelist and missionary who is not just promoting yoga, but is ardently promoting Hinduism. So the influence that is now coming, even through the 5,000 yoga schools in America and through even Hollywood, the top rating Hollywood movie is Avatar, which is a Hindi word, Avatar, that means reincarnation. And do you see movie after movie that comes out of even Hollywood the whole idea of reincarnation, which is essentially a Hindu idea, is seeped into our minds, into our education system, into our entertainment, even into the music industry. A lot of our music artists, they go to India and they take over the Hindu scriptures and weave them with the English words and people do not know when they are singing those ancient Hindu scriptures, not knowing what they are invoking. So maybe this is why my niece named her cat Karma. <laughs> Absolutely. Like Karma is now like, you know, a good word. You know, it's not a bad word. You know, so, uh, you know, uh, not just in names, but in philosophies and things which we are doing. There is a whole scale movement of promoting Hinduism. Now there is an International Yoga Day, you know, that is, is celebrated all over the world and been promoted intentionally by the Indian government and basically the religious homes and religious houses that are there which are promoting these things. So when it comes to yoga, it's not that certain bodily movements themselves can invoke other deities, but you're saying specifically 5,000 missionaries are teaching these kinds of bodily exercises and with it is a full package of Hindu theology. The basic thing is the West has swallowed the next thing, you know, and, uh, and not realizing the consequences of it. Yoga means union. Union with what? Union with the impersonal divine. So there is a religious element. It begins with the Surya Namaskar. That means saluting the sun the source of all energy. But that sun was created by our God. And what is promoted as exercise are really a certain section of the yoga that is exercise. But if you go back into the background of yoga, it is a deeply religious exercise and is one of the paths that lead to Atma Siddhi, that means the enlightenment that results a break from the cycle of birth and rebirth. 
yoga is a path to that and to promote it just by showing one bit of it is almost like selling a tiger by selling his tail you have not said that this is really a tiger that i'm selling you but you are saying this is a nice bushy tail would you like to buy it and people say oh no it is only just a stretching exercise well why would you like to do a stretching exercise while there are many secular stretching exercises are available why would you not do that why would you like to get involved in something that has got mysticism roots and clearly hindu roots well thank you so much for being my guest today on the white horse inn and for sharing your concerns about the dark side of hinduism thank you very much it was a great pleasure for 30 years the white horse inn has been dedicated to a single mission to help christians know what they believe and why they believe it and god has used our work to transform individuals families and churches folks we need your help to continue this important work If you sign up as a partner before the end of February, you'll receive a link to download a collection of 10 White Horse Inn episodes and 7 Modern Reformation articles on the topic of the Good Shepherd. Simply head to whitehorseinn.org/podcastpartner. That's whitehorseinn.org/podcastpartner to take advantage of this special offer. Thanks for your support.